We then talked about our belief in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a personal being, a member of the Godhead with the full authority of God. And the Holy Spirit is God dwelling in us when we're Christians. And when we listen to that Spirit in our lives, we'll do things we never thought possible. We'll see things we never could see before. And we'll be blessed in ways we could never imagine. And last week we talked about this new life that Christ gives us. This new life transforms us. It changes our perspective. And this new life is a blessing as we walk with Christ. And today we're going to talk about our belief in the crucifixion. The date was November 22, 1963. President John F. Kennedy sat in the rear seat of an open limousine as it traveled through the streets of Dallas, Texas. At 12.30 p.m., the cars approached an expressway for the very last leg of the trip. Suddenly, three shots rang out. The president slumped down. He was hit in the head and the neck. Doctors worked desperately in Dallas, Texas that day to save his life. But at 1 p.m., President Kennedy was dead. News spread across the shock nation. Millions around the world watched all this with a lot of sadness and despair. Do some of you remember where you were when you got the news President Kennedy had been shot? Something etched in our memories. Your memories. I'm not that old. I'm just kidding. But it seemed like everyone everywhere knew what had happened. While Jesus didn't hold political office, the news of his death spread throughout the ancient world with just as much interest and just as quickly. Within hours of Jesus dying on the cross, everyone in Jerusalem and Judea and the surrounding areas knew that he died. It was a day when time seemed to stand still. But when you read Matthew 21, we find the account of Jesus entering Jerusalem in what's often been called the triumphal procession. It's a parade almost, a celebration as he rides into Jerusalem. And we commonly celebrate this the Sunday before Easter known as Palm Sunday, the triumphal procession. And we read in Matthew 21.10, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The whole city was stirred. That's the same word used other places in the New Testament to talk about an earthquake. So basically the whole city was shaking with excitement as Jesus rode into the city. Can you imagine what that scene would have been like? The whole city was shaking. It was alive with excitement. And the, Jew, the people in Jerusalem said, who is this? They asked that question. Who is this man? People proclaimed, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This was literally a triumphal procession, a celebration. This was Sunday, the first day of the week. By the end of that week, things changed. We see acclamation change to accusation. We see an accusation lead to an arrest, right? We see an arrest lead to a fake trial. And we see a fake trial lead to crucifixion. The people in Jerusalem had seen Jesus work miracles, right? They had heard him speak with authority. They marveled at his words. There's no doubt they celebrated him when he rode in Jerusalem because they were quite sure this long-awaited Messiah had finally arrived. He was coming to the capital city, and he was going to finally clean house. He was going to overthrow the Roman government, get rid of their oppressors. But 
that Jesus didn't come to get involved in the government church, what happened? You know, instead of rallying support for a governmental revolution, instead of challenging the Romans, Jesus goes to the temple and he challenges the religious leaders. Not a good political move for Jesus, but Jesus was not a politician, amen? Not a good start to a revolution so many people were expecting. The multitude, they were still with him at this stage, but he clearly wasn't doing what they expected him to do as the Messiah. Then we're told Jesus goes outside of Jerusalem to Bethany and he teaches at the Mount of Olives and he returns on Thursday for the Last Supper with his disciples. But all week long, the Jewish leaders are scheming and plotting and trying to turn popular opinion against him. In the middle of the night, he's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's dragged before the high priest and then before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. And all this examining and cross-examining, all this took, uh, took place in the early hours of the morning. Jesus hadn't slept probably for over 24 hours. Y'all ever been up for 24 hours straight? It's tough, right? Fireman's been up that long, right? It's tough. Then when they thought it was a reasonable time in the morning, they hauled him before Pilate, the Roman governor. And they wanted Pilate to give his stamp of approval on their plan, right? To have him crucified. The accusation was treason, punishable by death. And Pilate was reluctant at first, right? He said, you know what? I find no fault in this man. But Pilate's a Roman governor, and a governor needs a happy constituency. So he appeases his people, and he orders the crucifixion. And the question that's been asked throughout all generations, throughout all time is... Who was responsible for Jesus dying on the cross? Some of us will say, well, that's an easy answer. The Romans were responsible. Pilate was responsible. The Jewish mob was responsible. Herod, you know, Judas Iscariot, he's the one that betrayed him in the first place, right? He's responsible. Or Satan himself. Or maybe we look at it a little more internally and we say, it was me who was responsible. My sins put him there. And all these answers are right. There were many hands involved in Jesus being nailed to the cross. But what I'm asking this morning is, who was ultimately responsible for Jesus going to the cross? Whose idea was it? Who was the mastermind behind the cross? Who was the architect of the cross? 2 Corinthians 5.19 tells us that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So who's the mastermind behind the cross? God. God himself. It was his idea. And to prove this, I want to look at a few facts that we find in Scripture. And the first fact is, God is the one who sent his son into this world. Remember what John 3.16 says. Read this with me this morning. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I'm thankful for that verse. How about you guys? Amen. In other words, this all began with God. God saw our dilemma, right? He saw that we were dead in sin, helpless, hopeless, 
cut off from ever having a relationship with him. So God took radical action. He sent his only son. He sent the Prince of Glory. He sent him into this world on a dark, really dark mission, but an important mission. He sent him into this dark world behind enemy lines to redeem us or buy us back to himself. Have you thought about that? He sent him from the palaces of heaven, the glory of heaven, down to a a smelly, stinky, dank stable to be born. And he did this all so that through him we could be saved. God sent his son into this world. And the second fact is God prepared his son for this mission. Isaiah 53, 2 tells us, He grew up before him like a tender shoot. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So like a gardener, God planted his seed in Mary's womb. And he watched Jesus be delivered in that stable that night. And he watched him grow into childhood and through his teenage years and into adulthood. He grew up strong. He grew up holy. And all the while, God was preparing his son for this mission he'd set before him. He was preparing this tender plant, we're told, to be cut down. God was like a shepherd. He was watching over this special lamb of the flock, this unblemished lamb, the best lamb, the purest lamb, and he gives special attention to it while it grows because it is to be the sacrifice for all sin. He's the one offered in sin. You remember what John the Baptist said When he saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. Amen. All through his life, 33 years on this earth, God was preparing his son for this mission he'd set before him. Here's the truth about God. God always prepares his people for the mission he has for us. Amen. God always prepares his people for the mission he has before us. You look all through the Bible, Joseph was being prepared through everything he went through to be the leader he became. Jesus was being prepared to be the sacrifice for our sins. What is going on in your life right now that God is preparing you for? What task or mission does he have laid before you? If you're going through some tough times, look for God's hand in it. Look for the mission He is bringing about through it. And draw from his peace and his strength, knowing he'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He'll never turn his back on you. We go through some tough times, right? You think, why me, Lord? Why am I dealing with this? Why are my loved ones suffering like this? Why am I dealing with this doubt or this fear? It just may be God is preparing you for a mission he has set before you. God will never send us into battle unprepared. Remember that. God was preparing Jesus for the mission he had before him. That mission to die on the cross. And another fact that we read in scripture, God drew Jesus to the cross. Isaiah 53, 5, what Matt read for us. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. 
So when the time was right, when the sacrifice was ready, God summoned Jesus to Jerusalem. And as he and his disciples were traveling there, he talked to them about dying. And they didn't really understand what was going on, obviously. But Jesus knew he was being led by God to complete this mission he'd set before him. you got to understand, Jesus wasn't fooled by the welcoming he received in Jerusalem. Because he's also God, right? God and human. So when the people were cheering and the people were just excited about his arrival, he still knew why he'd come. He knew by the end of the week all these people cheering for him would be nowhere to be found. He knew by week's end he'd be deserted. He knew he'd be crucified. And he was led by God into the garden where we read about Jesus wrestling with this task set before him. He was led to trial. He was led to the cross. And all this was done to provide us healing through his wounds. You know, this healing is spiritual. This healing that comes from Jesus is what cleanses us from our sins. Another fact about the cross, it was torturous. I can't stand before you and describe just how torturous this scene would have been. You all seen Passion of the Christ or other movies about the crucifixion, right? Maybe you've seen a reenactment, a live reenactment of the life of Christ, and there's been a staged crucifixion. I remember a parade that happened some time ago, and there were floats that would depict the crucifixion. No matter what we imagine, the crucifixion had to be that much more in cruelty. The depth of cruelty involved in what our Savior went through. Just think about what happened to him. We know he was beaten, right? Some people believe he was beaten 39 times because the Jews couldn't legally beat somebody beyond 40. So they would stop short just to make sure they hadn't broken the law. But of course we know Jesus was beaten by the Romans and they had no limits. Fogging was the beginning of a crucifixion. The scourging was intended to beat a person just shy of death. And as the fogging continued, the skin would give way to the muscles and bleeding would just be terrible. Pain and blood loss would set the stage for the circulatory system to go into shock. And in addition to this physical pain Jesus was feeling, there was also public shame involved, wasn't there? They were ridiculing him. The Romans and the Jews alike, they put a crown of thorns on his head and they said if he's a king he has to have a scepter. So they gave him a stick basically. And they said, Hail king of the Jews. They spat on him. And all this, Jesus never got angry. He never lashed out in hatred. The Jews ridiculed him. They said, if you're really a king, do what? Save yourself. The pain, physical pain, was bad. The emotional pain and the ridicule was bad. But you know what might have hurt Jesus worse than any of this? The fact that the people physically doing these things to him the exact people he'd come to save. You ever done something nice for somebody and later they just spit in your face? That happens to us sometimes, right? You're kind to somebody and they don't care. They throw it up in your face or they ridicule you. That hurts, right? You go out of your way to do something nice? Think what Jesus was going through, the human side of him. Here he was, had left heaven to come to this earth and serve, be the least of least. He's dying a very painful death. 
And the people were taking joy in doing it to him. And he came for them just the same as he did us here worshiping him today. That hurts, church. From there, he'd be made to carry his own cross. That's part of the humiliation. He tried to carry his cross, but he couldn't. Simon, a man from Cyrene, was enlisted to help Jesus or to carry his cross. And physicians who study crucifixion say it's no surprise he couldn't carry the cross because the pain and the blood loss likely left him in a pre-shock state. His condition before he ever reached being nailed to that cross was already very critical. Eventually he's taken outside of Jerusalem to a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull, the Bible tells us. That doesn't sound like a good place at all, does it? He's taken there. Nails were pounded into his flesh. Once the nails were pounded into his flesh, they lifted up the cross, dropped it into a hole, and his body sagged there on those nails. God drew his son to that cross just so we could be forgiven. Amen? God drew his son there just so that through his wounds we could receive spiritual healing. And another fact from the Bible, it was there on that cross God sacrificed his son. Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. Isaiah 53, 6, We all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Isaiah 53 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As Jesus hung there, suspended between heaven and earth on that cross, God had provided for himself a sacrificial lamb to pay the price for our sins, to meet the demands of his holy justice. As the blood of Christ poured out on the ground that day, our penalty was being paid. Think about this blood. Something you've got to understand about this blood. This blood is powerful. Why is it powerful? Because this blood is the only blood that can take away sins. It's the only blood that can result in forgiveness of sins. This blood has power. It has the power to forgive us no matter what we've done, no matter what you wrestle with, no matter what your struggle or addiction is, no matter what you've done in the past, no matter who you've hurt in the past, this blood can cleanse your sins. Amen? Amen. Don't forget that. Don't let the world tell you you're too bad to come to Christ. Don't let religious people tell you you're not good enough. The blood of Christ says otherwise. And it was poured out that day for all sins. Do we believe in the crucifixion? We believe. Amen. God took the sins of the whole world. All the guilt. All the vile. All the shame. All of man's rotten history and all man's rotten future. And he put it squarely on the shoulders of Jesus. Think about that. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin 
to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All of our shame, all of our condemnation, all of our sin was put on Jesus. And at that moment, the Father turned away. And Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He called that out once for all who put their trust and faith in him. And finally, he cries out one more time. It is finished. And at that moment, church, the mission was accomplished. What a Savior. Amen. What a God. What a crucifixion. We believe in the crucifixion. So let me ask this question as we close. Why did God all this? Why did Jesus allow himself to be led into this? Why did God allow his one and only son who was without sin die on the cross in such a painful way? I'll submit to you this morning there's one word that explains it. Love. Love. John 3.16 tells us, for God so loved what? The world. Doesn't say God so loved the righteous. Doesn't say God so loved just the Christian. Doesn't say God just so loved Americans. God so loved the world that he allowed his son to endure this because he wanted to buy us back from sin. If you don't feel valuable today, let that describe your value. You were valuable enough to God that he gave up his one and only son for you. None of us are perfect, right? We all sin. We all fall short of God's glory. And God can't look on sin. But when God looks at a Christian, you know what he sees? He sees the blood of his son. When God looks at Matt Oliver, he doesn't see all my imperfections. And trust me, there are plenty. Amen? He sees the blood. God looks at Steve Browning. He doesn't see all Steve Browning's shortcomings. He sees the blood of his son. Christ has us covered, church. Do we believe that today? Amen. So the question is, what do we do about it? You know, if you're not a Christian, you can be covered by this blood right now. God says, come to my son. Repent. Be baptized into him. When we, come in, when we go into baptism, it's not just getting wet in a pool of water. But we are the old person is dying, going away, and the new person is raised up. We are dying to our sin and becoming alive in Christ. Our sins are washed away. Will we be perfect afterwards? No. We might not even make the first step out of the baptistry in perfection. But you know what? We're covered by the blood of Christ. We have his spirit, the spirit we talked about a couple weeks ago, dwelling in us. That spirit that's going to help us. We all need help, right? Ain't nobody doesn't need help. We all need help. And church, God gives it to us. So do you believe in the crucifixion? If so, what will you do with it? If you are a Christian, thank God. Teach others about it out there. Tell them about this blood they can have. Don't go out there and pretend to be perfect. Go out there and show the world you struggle. But you know what? You're saved by the blood of Christ. Share your experiences. Teach your lessons. Show God's love. And if you're not a Christian, we'd love to help you this morning by being baptized into Jesus. If there's anybody here this morning who has a need, 
We want to invite you to come now as we stand and sing number 903.